Now you have in your papers then um, first, I'm sorry, Second Samuel 13. As you know, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through Scripture. Uh, I'm, I'm not against topical studies, but I prefer this for my own sake. First of all, because I could easily be terribly disorganized, especially in my current state. And it's really nice to know where I left off <laughs> and where I'm going to pick it up. But it also keep, helps me keep things in context. It helps you to challenge and to take a look at it and make sure it stays in context. And then it also just lets you know how to read ahead. But I'm going to start, by the way, from a text in the book of Galatians. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get our context for Second Samuel 13 and dive into one of the most disturbing chapters in all of the history of the life of David. Father, I just pray today by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would manifest through your word, that you would color in the black and white, and by the power of your Holy Spirit over these next 45, 50 minutes, you would teach us, and you would equip us, and challenge us, and correct us, and exhort us, do all those things that you tell us in 2 Timothy 3, 16, where it tells us that we, men and women of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work, that we would lack nothing. And so, God, I pray that as we open your word, we would take every exhortation to heart and every warning as well. Lord, that we recognize when we're to step on the accelerator and when we are to step on the brake and when we're just flat out to put this baby in park. So, God, I pray that you would captivate us in your word, that you would encourage us so much that this text, as dark as it can be, can still be phenomenally encouraging. And so, Lord, I pray that we would tonight embrace your heart and see the, the desperate nature of humankind and the fruit that is born from it. Oh, so God, today, redeem every moment, commandeer every word and every second that you would be glorified now. Oh, Lord, let Every one of us be personally spoken to, individually speak into every one of our lives. And God as well tonight, speak, Lord, I pray, into us as a family. We are your children, Father, and we've come to sit at your feet. And we have come tonight to be changed. So please have your work, we pray. Keep me clear and concise. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, I said, would any please don't just believe me? Never just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the final say. I would say it this way. Don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. The text that I want to pull out as, in essence, sort of the precursor to salt the meat before we cook it, it's from the book of Galatians chapter 6 when Paul says this to the only church he has no great praise for at the beginning. Uh, every letter that Paul writes of his 13 letters, there's always this sort of great, I thank the Lord when I constantly am thinking of you and I'm brought to prayer when I think of you. And normally it happens with two things. It's your faith and how it's exercised, your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And it seems to be Paul's common theme through his letters that Paul, uh, of, this, of the 13 letters, two of the churches he hadn't met, Colossians and Romans, the rest he had personally, in essence, had a hand in planting uh, in regards to those, uh, the ones that are circular. And Galatia was one of those churches. He knew the church. He had been there. He had been ill initially when he had been brought in. That's the center of Turkey to this day. Galas, like galactic, like galaxy, means milk. Uh, those who live in the center of Turkey today still 
have a very milky complexion. They, have that, they don't have the olive skin you would see, for instance, of those living in Istanbul or those living in what would have been Asia Minor, places like Cushodesi or Ephesus in its day. And those places you see and you kind of go, okay, that person looks Turkish. But in the middle, they have this, they kind of look like Bruno, to be honest. I mean, you wouldn't think the guy was Turkish. And so they call them Galatians because their skin was milky white. And that's where Paul was traveling through a hotbed for things like typhoid and malaria. And Paul was in a really rough shape. And they take him in and Paul administered to them. And after Paul had left a particular place that he'd gone to plant a church, following him were a group of legalists a group of people who, according to the book of Acts, chapters 11 and 15, were a group of Pharisees who had believed and tried to drag their old self over. We all do that to some extent. But they tried to drag who they were. And in their case, they had a tremendous amount of prominence and learning. And they just tried to figure out how to Christianize their learning. Unfortunately, a lot of the Pharisaic mindset was birthed in a person called Shammai. And Shammai was a hardcore, radical Jewish endorser, born and raised in, uh, in Jerusalem. Very, very different from Hillel, who would have been uh, his predecessor in that sense. There was a, quite a difference. He had actually been born in Babylon and brought over. He was much more of a casual person, and he was, he was really more sensitive, in essence, to a lot of the concerns of people. Shammai had just said Gentiles were created to fuel hell. That was kind of Shammai's mindset. So you can imagine when a group of people raised in that mindset well, then got saved, and then God started saving the Gentiles, that has to be a complete fuse blow. And so they were following Paul around, trying, their compromise was, well, if these Gentiles were going to get saved, we're going to make them as Jewish as we can. And what unfortunately was happening is, in the simplest sense, they were putting the Ten Commandments in Egypt, if that makes sense. It's like, if you could do them, then you'll get out, instead of, now that you're out, let's keep you from going back. In the midst of that, Paul has this concern, and he says this then, in chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And then the next verse, often pulled out without even in context of that, which is, let us not grow weary in doing good or in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose hearts. Therefore, as much as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, what Paul is telling us is a couple of things, and there's some standards God set into mind which take us into our text in 2 Samuel. And that is, first of all, whatever you plant, you will not get a different kind from what you plant. If you plant an apple seed, you will get an apple tree. It would be really, really contrary to all nature if you planted an apple seed and got a peach tree out of it. That would be something supernatural. But there's more than just that. Please hear me. It's more than just you get what you sow, but also you get more than you sow. Have you noticed? Jesus had talked about the seed that fell on the good soil when he talks in Matthew 13 about the parable of the seed and the sowers. And he says it bore forth 30, 60, 100 fold. He would say that he who sows to the wind reaps the whirlwind. And I've learned this, having children, that what happens is that whatever you kind of invest a little bit, it bears forth to a greater degree. You will always get of its kind and you will get more than you bargained for. Now, there's a, there's a negative to it and a positive. The negative is, you have two things, in essence, you can sow. 
You can sow to the flesh, which is a me-first, me-gratifying, world-revolves-around-me mindset. And you can sow to the Spirit, which is a selfless surrender to the will of God for the purpose of His pleasure and the purpose of serving others in that process. In doing so, this is what we should expect. If I sow to a me-first, me-invested, world-revolves-around-me mindset or a flesh nature, I will reap corruption, destruction, putrescence, rotting. And that's what he's telling us. He goes, on the other side of it, if you reap to the Spirit... Our surrender to the living God for his pleasure and for the benefit of everyone else, including ourselves, we will then, in essence, reap eternal life. Now, he tells us this in regards to the, to the well, in essence, it'll happen on both sides. But he says, a seed does not produce fruit unless it dies. Once it dies, it will produce fruit. If it doesn't die, it will remain alone. And I like that term. And what's interesting is you will find Sooner or later, you are going to die to one or the other. You either die to the flesh and just completely lose any interest in your walk with God. Or you will die from the flesh, if you will, and die to the spirit. For which then the world becomes a place to visit, but not home. In our text, David now is starting to see the fallout from his reaping or sowing to the flesh. David, we read, by the way, first of all, and it's important to note, back all the way in chapters 9 and 10, God started showing us the result of God giving a promise to David that he would build him a legacy, ultimately bringing in the Messiah, building him a house, and giving him a throne that would ultimately last eternally. And we know, of course, that's the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince. I know that. And David then goes and he takes this promise of God's future that's been placed upon him and he just starts expanding that kingdom to the greatest expanse that that kingdom has ever known in Israel. In that context, then we find this battle takes place. I mean, and he shows great kindness to his predecessor's child, Mephibosheth, who happens to be his best friend's son. And then there's this battle with the Ammonites. The battle was not a battle David sought. The king, Hanun, by the way, had, uh, the, the king Nachash had died. His son Hanun had, ta- had taken over. Nachash, by the way, means serpent. I don't know if you really want to be in a league with a guy named that, but his son means grace, strange for what it is, because he, he's, he's a young guy, appears, and he's definitely suspicious. And his counselors confirm that suspicion and say, David didn't come to send comforters, he came to send spies. For which then they go and humiliate them, shave off half their beard, give them halter tops, and send them away to run off naked and, and, and shamed in every way you can in the culture. Now today you might spray paint something on someone's face. You might super glue something to their head. Think about what you would do to humiliate an individual today. They come back. David, in essence, has them wait in Jericho until their beards are grown. Assumedly, he gets them new clothes. And then ultimately, David's gonna, David recognizes this means war. With that, the Ammonites were a much smaller group. They're in the northeast. And you can see on that map that you've been given kind of where Ammon would be. And that will be important because ultimately we're going to see something with Absalom today, and you'll need to see the map for that. Understand, they recognize they're kind of a bit of a smaller group, so they hire mercenaries, 33,000 foot soldiers from Syria who appear to be guns for hire. As they are guns for hire, David now, interestingly enough, still doesn't seem to be in the heat of the battle. He has his commander, Joab, Yoav, 
and his little brother, Abishai, to go and head up the battle. They recognize the battle is in front of them. That's the Ammonites. And all of these mercenaries are behind them. So they decide to split up. Yoav, as the commander, looks at his little brother and says, hey, here's the deal. I'm going for these guys. You go, uh, you go and take the guys in the front to take us forward. I'm going to take these guys in the back and we're going to take them down. And what we see is a perfect example of accountability. You realize the battle's on two fronts. The battle to move forward, like with the Ammonites, and the battle that is behind us in our past. Now, interesting, because Yoav means Father God. Abishai means the Father's gift. And I see that that just makes perfect sense to me. What is it that takes me forward? Well, the Father's gift, His Holy Spirit leads me forward, even in that battle. Behind us, who takes care of the past? The Father did by sending His Son. And by the way, he's paid for all of our sins. But it's amazing how the enemy loves to remind you of your past. Because let's face it, you can't change it. But you can cover it in blood. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, the battle will be on both sides. And do you have somebody that will stand with you in that kind of accountability? On one side saying, hey, are you stepping back into the world you once knew? Do you have someone that loves you enough to lovingly and gently get in your face and tell you, you know, you're walking in the wrong direction. But do you have someone that also loves you to challenge you enough to say, you know, I've noticed you're really not taking any steps forward either. Well, that's the command. Or I should say that that's the example we see borne out. Unfortunately, the next chapter, which is Second Samuel 11, well, actually what we see is the absence of it. David now, it tells us it's the time when the kings go out to battle. David's not going out to battle. Why isn't he going out to battle? Well, it seems like he thinks he's got things covered with the boys he sent out. But God made clear, this is when kings go out to battle, and this king isn't going out to battle. Interesting, he's actually going into battle at home, a battle he'll lose. David was always safer on the battlefield with the Lord than he ever would be in the palace by himself. And there, with no accountability, he sees a woman bathing on the roof. That woman, by the way, we read her name is daughter of a covenant, Bathsheba. That should be a warning. She happens to be the granddaughter of his chief counselor, Ahithophel. That should be a warning, strike two. And she happens to be the wife of one of his 33 bodyguards. That should I mean, if anything should do it, that should do it. This guy could come into your, into your room unannounced with a weapon. That's not the guy, that's not the wife you want to go after. Well, you shouldn't go after any, but even unsaved people should have that much logic. But David wants her anyways. And he takes her and he lays with her. And he is now sown to the flesh. David has surrendered to his flesh. Me first. I'm entitled. I deserve. I'm getting it. And as David does, she becomes pregnant. David ultimately will try to get the husband back to try to get him to sleep with her to try to make it look like it's his baby of which he's too noble to do so, and he'll ultimately have the guy killed because the slippery slope of that flesh is just going to get worse with each step he takes. And David now is in a place where he'll tell us in Psalm 32 and 51 that when he remained silent, his bones grew old. He moaned day and night because God's hand was heavy upon him. He was in a place, David was a mess. You want to see the most miserable person on the planet? Watch an unrepentant Christian because they're somebody who knows how good it can be and they're trying to convince themselves it can be good somewhere else. 
and they know deep in their heart it's a lie. And can I lovingly tell you, God wants you miserable when you're running from him. Why would he want you happy away from him? Because he created you to be with him. Everything that God does is motivated by drawing man to him. Everything he does. Every miracle, every endurance, every word spoken, it is to draw you and others into a deeper relationship. And that's what he does. Well, God in his love for David will send prophet Nathan. Nathaniel means God's gift. So imagine you see a guy named Nathaniel, like, what do you think? You're like God's gift? Well, he's like, well, that's his name. Well, with that, Nathaniel kind of goes and he throws a story out and he's fishing the pool of or the pond of David's conscience. And he starts laying out this story about a rich man who has everything but one ewe lamb that a guy that seems to be in the same neighborhood has. The rich man has no interest in surrendering any of his own things for the traveler, but takes somebody else's thing and hands it over and slaughters it for the traveler. David is infuriated, and he invokes the strictest ordinance of the law. If you steal an animal, your requirement is to pay back fourfold for that, that animal. Now, I don't know about you, but I think, wouldn't that be great? In our law, if somebody stole from you, and instead of you having to pay to, to give them free housing and food somewhere, you actually, what you had to do is the guy had to pay you back four times for what he stole. Actually, to be honest, someone stole from you might be one of the best things that happened. You're like, hey, here's something I really don't like. Take my phone. Again, okay, iPhone 7. I mean, it's like, anyways, yeah, that's, that's a loophole. Forgive me. But you get the idea. And so David invokes, he's like, first of all, let's kill the guy, and then he has to pay fourfold, which tells you David's kind of off his nut, because how do you kill a guy and then make him pay? Well, with that, then, of course, Nathan says, Nathaniel says, you're the man. You're guilty of this. You don't even realize you want to throw the whole book and the full strength of the law on this guy, but the guy you want to nail is you. And you know, when your conscience is being troubled because the Holy Spirit's trying to get back in and have his say, Boy, that sin gets really ugly on someone else because it reminds you of your own. Nathaniel says, here's the good news. David falls down. He's like, look at I've sinned. And God says, you know, I'm not going to kill you, David. But you pronounced a judgment and you need to know you've given an opportunity for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme because of this nonsense. David, you're about to reap. Now understand, this isn't God sending demise on David. The same way that if you, if you plant nettles in your yard, don't blame God for having horrible ankles when you walk in your garden. You planted it. And it is amazing how many times somebody wants to blame God. They're running out there, sleeping with whoever they want, and then they get some form of sexually transmitted disease, and they want to blame God as if he gave it to them. It wasn't like they were sitting there and it was like immaculate disease. Well, obviously, you know, it's sort of like strange, but sooner or later you find you swim with the fish, you just might actually rub against one. And the reason I say that is God makes this clear. He's not going to be mocked, so stop deceiving yourself. Stop trying to convince yourself you are somehow immune or somehow you are above what, what God clearly said in order, and that is, you're going to reap what you sow. Now, the good news is this, is that it isn't just the bad you reap you'll sow. 
the Bible does tell us in the book of Proverbs, it tells us that he who seeks to cover his sin will not prosper, but for whoever confesses it and forsakes it will find mercy. Understand that even in a horrible failure, you can repent, you can surrender it to God, and God can dig it up and start planting your repentance in its place. In our story now, and forgive me for the lengthy ride, but I want us to know where we're at, the child that she was pregnant with will ultimately die. And I remind you, David said, let this man pay fourfold. The entire rest of the book of Second Samuel is in essence David paying that bill. Or should I say it this way, David harvesting his seed. So what we have here is a really rough chapter because this is what we would say, well, that won't happen to me. I'm immune. I'm impervious. I know there's all these people, but I'm a superhero. Now you're going to reap what you sow. But at this moment, you are in this room and God is seeking to plant the beautiful word of his, of him, his word in your heart. And as you inculcate it, it actually blossoms and grows and bears forth fruit to eternal life. Do you realize even in this room right now, you're actually, you're farming. Your heart's the soil. Praise God you're in this room. All right, you ready? You've probably been ready longer than I have in this. Second Samuel 13, 1 says this. After this Absalom, the son of David had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. Now, David has several children. He has at least, at this point, 11 wives, from which all have seemed to be, they all seem to be quite fertile. But he has this particular wife, and it's important to recognize she happens to be a princess from a place called Geshur. Can you find that on your map? Look, in essence, northeast. Kind of look somewhere kind of in the Barnets or the Finchleys, if that makes sense. Okay. Her name, by the way, mom's name, real sweetheart, is Ma'aka. Ma'aka, by the way, means torture or torment. I don't care how cute she is. With a name like torment, ain't marrying her. I mean, you should see it on the label. Well, with that, nonetheless, she, but she must be really, really fine because her children are beautiful, which includes, by the way, Harry Absalom. He's got, he's just chunky headed haired guy. We'll find out later about him and his beautiful sister named Tamar, which means palm tree. Now, could it be now you've seen palm trees, right? Palm trees are really, I mean, they're fairly they're, I, I am no artist. I can barely draw water, but I can tell you, I can draw a palm tree. You draw two lines like this, and then you start going, shoop, shoop, shoop. And if you look at it from a distance, we have this thin little thing, and then this big glop of stuff on the top. And I kind of get the idea, since Absalom was this guy that, by the way, had five pounds of hair that he would shit, you know, that he'd get a cut once a year. That's a lot of hair. Hair's not heavy. I mean, I just kind of get the idea she was kind of like that, too. She was like, fine, but she had lots of hair on the top. She kind of looked like a microphone would be the idea. And so she had this lovely sister, Tamar. She's the second Tamar in Scripture. We kind of know about the one because Judah uh, had a son who was really awful named Ur. Uh, He had a wife named Tamar, and he was evil, so God killed him. And so the the law of levirate marriage, which is from Deuteronomy 25, she had to marry then the next brother, whose name was Onan, and God killed him too. And at that point, father-in-law is getting a little nervous about giving the, the last son, who seems to be too young at that point, named Shelah. So he's like, why don't you wait? And she's like, mm, I don't think I'm ever going to get this boy. 
So she dresses like a prostitute. Yeah, God holds no boundaries on this. He just tells you as it is. She dresses like a prostitute, sleeps with the father-in-law, Judah, and has a baby. Then what happens? She comes back because she's living in the household. Now, strangely enough, Judah doesn't recognize her. Well, we don't have to develop that. My guess is it was dark. Nonetheless, somewhere down the line, she comes to the house, and now she's starting to show and now, look at just like David's situation. He's like, oh, look at this. I've got a hussy in the house. But see, he gave her a pledge. What that meant is, well, I can't really pay you right now, so take my staff. And when I, you know, I'll come back and get it. And when I come back and get it, I'll give you the money. You know, and she's like, okay. So she comes in, you know, and he's like, well, we're just going to have to kill you, you hussy. And she goes, well, you're right. The guy who got me pregnant is this one. And now he knows it's his stuff. And, of course, Anyways, all of that to say, I don't know if I'd name a daughter Tamar after that story. I mean, it's like Delilah, nonetheless. So, first, first verse. I won't do this with every verse. And Absalom had a son. I'm sorry, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister. Her name was Tamar. So Absalom and Tamar are full-blood sister and brother. Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon happens to be the son of David, but a different mother. He's actually the oldest. And he looks, and what he sees, in essence, is his half-sister. Remember, they both have the same dad genes in them, which is a little bit concerning because dad genes, well, you can see where dad's genes have got him in the last couple chapters. Now, I want to point out that Hebrew is a, what's called a pure language. And what that means is it doesn't have any natural terms that are derivative of something horrible. So you have to put words together. There are several languages like this. Like, you don't have words like jerk fool, idiot. What you have to do is you have to put words together like empty head or moral list or, you know, or dish rag. I mean, you just have to pick, you put things together and dog face. And that's kind of the idea. And so the reason I say that is this word, the word for love. It is interesting. And please hear me in this. In the Hebrew, there's one word for love, much like the English language. But it's, isn't it weird to you to think you could love your husband or your wife and your sandwich and your dog and that movie? And that's the same word? And that's the word that was defined by Jesus hanging on a cross? How do I compare Jesus hanging on a cross as the ultimate act of love to a really good sandwich? It just puts blasphemy in the arena of this perfect love, especially when you realize often when we use the word we're fishing. You know, you're on the phone and you're like, I love you. And what you're saying is, please say it back, right? You know, I have a daughter, by the way. She's 13, and she's just she just doesn't play that game. I'm like, I love you, sweetie. She's like, yep, that's good. That's a good answer, by the way. That's good. She, normally, she goes, okay. You know, so I can't be like fishing for that because I just kind of know that pond's dry right now. Now, deep down inside, I just tell her that when she yawns, she's telling me she loves me because she yawns a lot. I'll be like, because she yawns when I do. And she'll yawn. And I'm like, yes, I love you too, sweetheart. Anyways, and the reason I say that is, please hear me, God introduces love in Genesis 22. Interesting, he didn't introduce love in the garden. Didn't introduce it with man and Adam, Adam and man, or for that matter, with Adam and Eve. You'd think that'd be a great place. But if God introduced love with Adam and Eve, we'd think it was all sensual and romantic, wouldn't we? He didn't introduce it with Adam and his sons, or we would think it was completely familial. But interesting, where God introduced it is in Genesis 22, when God told Abraham, who had been waiting 25 years for a son, 
take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. When God wanted to introduce love in Scripture, he did it through the ultimate act of sacrifice from a father, not from the son. Please hear that. Because we often, you know, as a Christian, especially raised in a Western culture like America, like here, the focus is on Jesus. And truly, Jesus does love us with the ultimate act because he tells us that greater love have no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. I get that. But the majority of the times God defines love in the New Testament, does he do it from the son's perspective or from the father's? What's the most famous verse in all scripture? For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. Whose perspective is that from? The son or the father? That's from the father. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation in elasmus for our sins. Interesting, because you know what? Until I became a father, I never got it. I read right past it and said, thank you, Jesus. But then I had children. And 99% of the time, I can't imagine giving them up. <laughs> just kidding. Um, I would never imagine giving them up. And I was like, Lord, you could just take them right now. Uh, but I just, I just don't look at, to jump in front of a bullet or a train for you is conceivable. But let my child be tortured to death for you? Not, not on the table. And I realize it is a greater love. And it took me to become a dad to know that. And I look at this and I realize this is how God introduced love. It was the love of a father who would give up his son of promise he'd waited so long for. Interesting, though. It really only took another 12 chapters before God shows us man's counterfeit. It actually didn't even take us that long. It took us three chapters before his, that, that son's son, Jacob, well, he has a couple, you know, Jacob and Esau. Well, well, let me just say it this way. That son of promise, Isaac, Ishak, which means laughter or what a joke. I mean, imagine that how you're in school. What's your name? Oh, I'm a joke. Uh, because it was, a, it was a total funny thing to think. You know, it's like, it's like father and, you know, it's like parents visit the school day. And you're like, oh, you brought your great grandfather. No, that's my dad. He's a hundred and something. Uh, but it was like three chapters later, that son Isaac is actually talking to his sons, Jacob and Esau. And he says, bring me that savory food as such as I love. And it was only three chapters later. And there was man's counterfeit to God's love. Total surrender of what was most important Give life to give life. And then it was just, please me. And then it was Jacob, and two chapters later, who, by the way, that, that, that son would actually, ultimately, it says he loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve seven years for this woman. And it tells us, but the years were like days because of the love he had for her. That surrender again, because he knew that what he would get was worth it. But then, Genesis 34, where there's the daughter Dinah, who Shechem looks at and it says he loved her and he raped her. And of course, from that, the Shechemites will be obliterated to most of the degree by two of the boys, two of her brothers. And here's the point. Throughout Scripture, you see, here's God's selfless, surrendered love and here's man's selfish love. And they're both called love, but they're both very, very opposite of each other. And you know what they are? This is sowing to the Spirit 
That's the love of God, and sowing to the flesh is the love of yourself. And we see it throughout Scripture. So it doesn't surprise me that's what we see here. When we read that this half-brother looks at palm tree and goes, Oh, I love her. No, what he's really saying is, I love me, and she is the perfect candidate for me to love me. That is not God's love. Now, Amnon, by the way, his name ironically means faithful, was so distressed, it means he was bound, he was handcuffed, over his sister, Tamar, that he became sick. He lost all his strength. He was weak. I love the fact it's also the word used for diseased. For she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Now, I need to let you know something. Remind you, he who plants is going to reap. And here's the danger, is we forget that it's planting. We forget that it's sowing. So what happens is we think that it's more like there's pressure in the balloon, and if we could let out a little bit of air, things will be better. But what you're doing is you're sowing. You're not letting out air. So what happens is you're, you're feeling this lustful urge and you're like, I know, I will, I'm not going to really look at anything. I'm just going to completely, with no real intent, unsupervised, look at the internet for the next three hours. Yeah. Well, you've done a really good job of lying to yourself. And you're like, well, I just have to get this tension off of me. You are sowing. You are sowing and you are sowing. It's just another look. It's just another conversation. It's another wrong text. It's another chat place you shouldn't be on. It's another place. It's another little drink. It's another this and it's another that. And you know that there's no place in this trajectory. We think everything kind of has like, it's like a stance. It's not a stance. It's a trajectory. And we look at that and we forget that the the trajectory leads to destruction because we are sowing and we're assuming somehow if I plant this sooner or later, it'll never harvest. And he looks and he's distressed. He's handcuffed. He's rolling it over. And every time he rolls it over in his head, he feels those, those, those ropes tighten on his hands like Chinese handcuffs on your fingers. The more you pull, the tighter it gets. And you're just like, man, till it's all that consumes him. I remind you, she's a sister. Sin is confining. Never forget that. Because Satan... From the beginning, has played this off like that's where freedom is, and the world tells you that too. Didn't God say you couldn't have any of the, you couldn't have any of the trees of the garden? You know Satan's still playing that today. Christianity, that's so confining. All your songs are about God. Oh, I wish all of our songs were about God. I'm like, yeah, your songs are all varied, getting wet and squishy and getting naked and doing this. Yeah, they all sound so varied. Your subject matter is so unique. It's all the same thing. From the very beginning, they had a tree, we had the garden. Never forget that. Well, he's handcuffed. This is what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, God's tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone himself. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth. Or I should say, it brings forth death. It starts with being drawn away. You're in one place and something says, go there. And you're like, nope. And then you go, maybe I'll take a little inch and I'll take a little. And it is amazing. You know how you fall off a cliff an inch at a time. And sooner or later, you get close enough and you're like, see, I didn't fall. (laughs) 
Gravity's a lie. Get a little closer. Oh, you know, and sooner or later you get to the place where other people have fallen and you haven't still. And you're like, wow, I guess I really am kind of spiritual Superman until gravity really wins because it will. Well, in all of this, this is where he's at. Amnon had a friend. Verse 3, and his name was Yonadav. Yonadav, by the way, means God is always willing. And by the way, might I say, this is the kind of person not to have as a friend. We'll see it born out here, but the person that's like God permits everything. Come on. You ever hear anyone say, it's so much easier to just do it and ask for forgiveness than ask for permission? What that tells you is you don't con- you're not concerned at all about hurting the feelings of the person you would be asking. Well, this guy, and he's the son, by the way, of a guy whose name means reputation, Shemaya. David's brother, so that's uncle, which means this is a cousin. Yonadav was a very crafty, chacham, that means, you know, he really, he's a sly, sneaky fella. Yeah. And he said to him, and now let's start building on the text so that you know I'm actually going to develop everything. He says, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day by day? Will you not tell me? Now understand what he's saying is, you deserve everything, and you're getting worse. That makes no sense to me. And if you have a person that feeds that part of you that thinks you are entitled, get away from that person. Because what they're doing is they're leading you into a path of destruction. We are entitled to hell. That we have properly earned. What we get that's good is by grace. And for that, we get out of the kindness of God and we boldly go to that throne of grace. Not entitlement. Will you not tell me? Amnon says to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. You can still do the math. That's still your sister, right? You know what I've said to him? Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my, let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare that food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Well, you can kind of get the idea they're hatching a plan. Now, ladies, can I just ask, if any two guys were talking like this, would you find anything noble in this conversation? They're going to fake sick so you can come over so they can rip you and pull you into bed. This is the king who is the man after God's own heart. It is his children who are doing this. You know why? Because his children are the harvest of David's sowing. Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat it from her hand. Apparently dad has no clue. David sent home to Tamar, which tells us that David then, for the rest of his life, is going to feel like he was a part of this. Innocently, but a part nonetheless of this particular aspect. David sent home to Tamar, tells us that he's not obviously home, saying, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down. She took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes, and she took the pan and placed them before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. Girls at this point, you're kind of getting that uh uh-oh feeling. You should. And they all went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom, that I may eat it from your hand. Tamar took 
the cakes in which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. And when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister. You get the idea of what he's saying. And she answered and said, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. This word disgraceful, by the way, chavala means to be senseless, immoral. By the way, it's interesting that God puts the word senseless and immoral as the same word. Don't you find that interesting? And where can I take my shame, chalpa, reproach, taunt, upbraiding? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Do you realize what she's saying? She's going to look at, if you really want to be with me, you should put a ring on it. And you could. You could actually ask dad, and I believe he would let me be your wife. In other words, what's, I mean, we don't need to develop that for the moment. What we really need to develop is the fact that there seemed to be a legitimate way for him to do this, but he really isn't loving her like God would want to love her. He's loving himself, and she's all part of that now. Now notice in this, pushing this type of thing, well, first of all, she says this shouldn't be done by anyone. This, even in the world around us, this shouldn't be done. It's disgraceful, senseless, and immoral, and it turns the girl or the victim, if you will, into someone that others would make fun of, and it turns the perpetrator into a common fool. That's what she just said, isn't it? She's like, look at the perpetrator. You are going to be a fool in the size of every, sight of everyone else. And I, the victim, I'm going to be someone everyone makes fun of. Is that really love? And you're probably aware of the fact that the prison system has a special place for perpetrators for rape. Because the rest of the prison system, even those who have done a horrible, in many cases, things like murder, see rapists in a whole different way, and they see them as someone they have no problem beating on. And of course, if children are involved, it's even more so. So even a strange code of thieves, if you will, even among the, the prison. And the reason I say that is, is that she says, look at it, even of all the horrible things you can do, this one will leave a lasting ramification for you and for me for the rest of our lives. This single moment is going to bear forth fruit for the rest of our lives. And you see what she's trying to do. She's trying to pull him out of the moment because he's so obsessed with this moment that he doesn't realize that this quick moment is going to bear forth fruit for the rest of his life. And this is how Satan works. I don't like to give him a lot of press, but he works like TV products. You get the product up front and then you pay for it for the rest of your life. And by the time you're still paying for it, you're like, I don't even like this thing anymore. But what I find interesting is the fact she said you would be like Nahash, fool. And that's how this whole thing started, don't forget. When David sent comforters up because Nahash died up in Ammon, and what happened is his son treated them shamefully. And as a result, David responded while well, he sent men out, and ultimately the battle that he should have been in, he wasn't in. He says, you'll become the Nahash in the story. You'll be the fool. And the Baal actually is the case, like where David, if you think about it, David, who had, um, who had wanted to kill the man who wouldn't allow him a feast because he had guarded the sheep. If you remember from that's First Samuel 25, and he winds up marrying his wife after he dies, named Abigail. For what it's worth, the idea is there is a fool that you would be playing the part of. That God actually, the last time we saw his name was killed. Here's the point. 
If you get focused on the moment, we call it tunnel vision, you get focused on the moment, you don't see how that sin is going to bear forth fruit. Man, you got to stop. You got to give just open yourself up to let the Holy Spirit tell you because you're not going to want to hear that they're not easy payments. And she's going, you don't want to do this. This hurts you. This hurts me. And the whole nation is going to suffer because of this. And doesn't this just echo of what took place with David? However, he would not heed her voice, being stronger than he had forced her to lay down with her. He raped her. This is love. Yes, it is. But it's not love of her. It's love of yourself. Interesting, I remind you, his name means faithful. Oh, he is faithful. He's just not faithful to that which is good. Hitler was faithful too. Faithfulness in and of itself isn't great. It's to what and to whom you are faithful that makes it important. But what's really sad is what happens when you get consumed in the moment of something self-gratifying that the fallout becomes lethal. Like the form, forgive me on the Nechash Namal. Amin, it tells us in verse 15, hated her exceedingly. The word, by the way, for what Sone is, the word that you use in regards to someone becoming your enemy. So that he, the hatred in which he hated her was greater than the love that he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. He rapes her and then kicks her out of the room. She said to him, No, indeed, this evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he wouldn't listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended to him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Now, she had a robe of many colors, which says that she was favored, and Dad didn't mind highlighting her. For the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel, and his servant put her out and bolted at the door behind her. And I get the idea. She's looking. She realizes she'll never be able to wear this coat again. His consuming passion for himself led to a blatant disregard for her. There was nothing in this kind of love that remotely cares for another. And when their purpose is fulfilled in that moment, well, then the use for them is over. Do you really think that this kind of love is what you want? Because you can get this kind of love. It doesn't have to be rape per se, but you can get this kind of love out those doors with a whole lot of choices. It comes in different flavors and shapes and sizes, but in the end of it all, this is the love of the world. And how do I know that? Because the world, according to 1 John, is under the sway or influence of the wicked one. His priorities and mindsets are when they're inculcated into the system of this world. And you know what the problem is? We could try to say, well, but if I give up enough, maybe I'll get commitment. Please hear me in this because we go through this quickly. The way that it says it in Scripture, the biblical way is commitment produces time which births intimacy. The way the world says it is Intimacy may get you more time, which just may get you a commitment. It's completely opposite. But why would you expect someone to commit when you've already given them everything? Well, all of that to say this. This poor girl at this point has been raped. She's no longer a virgin. She no longer wear that robe. And she is now banished. 
Then Tamar put ashes on her head as a sign of mourning, tore her robe of many colors that was on her, and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. But then there's her brother. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. And Tamar remained desolate. Shemem. Shemem means to waste away or to be destroyed, to be loosened. And she was in that condition in her brother Absalom's house for the rest of her life. This girl is just going to be the girl locked away in a room. Amnon's actions have permanently devastated the life of another, a woman he claimed to love. His selfish act tarnished and destroyed the life of a pure woman. But what about dad? What do you think dad's going to do when he hears about it? Verse 21 says, But when King David heard these things, he was very angry. That means he was hot, he was furious, he was wrathful, but he did nothing. Do you know why he did nothing? I think he saw his own sin in it and felt he had no right to. This is one of the problems when you actually you stare in the face of your own sin. Is even when you're responsible for punitive action, you either come down super heavy or you don't come down at all. You realize you've lost your objectivity to properly judge. And so now what happened? Imagine seeing it from Tamar's perspective. Your dad did nothing to your brother who raped you. But do you know how, unfortunately, please forgive me for saying this, if this is something you've experienced, but this is an extremely common situation. Because often the father can't con- conceive the concept of something like that happening in his household. Unless, of course, he's a perpetrator himself. Because it tends to be something that you hand down. And you realize in a situation like this, here, I'm here to let you know, first of all, that God tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. No matter what horror you've, you've gone through, whatever horrible things you've ever experienced, and you feel the shame, and you feel the filth, and you feel the muck, and you, feel, you realize that you're a victim, but there's a part of you that still wants to blame yourself because you, you, that's part of the weird concept of emotions that spin around where it's like somehow if, had I, if I could have been wiser, if I shouldn't have been there, if I should have saw it coming, or I shouldn't have been baking those cakes, or I shouldn't have gone in his room. You know, but you had the purest of mindsets in it, and somehow all of it had happened to you anyways, and you feel as I'm here to let you know my God can deliver you from those things, and he can deliver you from the pain and the grief and the sorrow and the self-loathing and the blame and the condemnation that because those things are all part and parcel with that from the enemy to keep you in that state. I'm here to let you know that if you are in Christ, you are clean and you are free. And oh, if by grace we could grasp the truth of that. So verse 22 Absalom spoke to his brother, Amnon, neither good nor bad. In other words, he wouldn't talk to him for a moment. Imagine how weird the house would be during breakfast. And we're all sitting there and we're having our porridge and you just watch him. He's like... You'd pick up on it, wouldn't you? I would. I said I'd like to think. Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. It came to pass, listen to this closely, two full Years after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor. 
the Lord of the village is what his name, what that means, which is in Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Uh, for what it's worth, that's this Chatzor, by the way, would be like, for instance, where Sisera, the commander, uh, had actually taken him on, if you remember from Judges 4. Absalom said to the king, Kindly note, kindly note your servant has sheep shares. Please let the king and the servants go with your servants. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. He urged him, but he wouldn't go. And he blessed them. And Absalom said, oh, Well, uh, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. Now, after two years, if I'm staring him down like a, like a bull ready to charge, uh, you'd think, nah, this doesn't seem like a good idea. And the king said to him, well, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him. He's like, come on, dad, please. So he let Amnon and all of the king's sons go with him. And they imagine dad's like, well, he's not going to go by himself. So Absalom had commanded his servants saying, now watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on their mule and fled. I don't know how fast mules are, but just the same, assumedly faster than you can run by yourself. But I don't want you to miss this, how this is repeating itself. In the beginning, there was Amnon, and Amnon was possessed with a fury. And that possession took time. And that time baked and it manifested and it gestated and it cultured and it grew until it ultimately he was drawn away and enticed, but it ultimately gave birth with his will to sin. And that sin full grew to death. Now understand what happened is it came with an idea and then he entertained it. Well, yeah, she's really, oh, she's growing up well. She's looking fine. Well, she's my sister, but she's fine. It's like a palm tree. You know, and he says, oh, wouldn't it be, and oh, wouldn't it be great to be with her? Oh, that'd be so amazing to be with her. And he goes over it in his head and he becomes more and more. And we don't read how much time took place. All we know is it's been time and time and the narrow, the, the tunnel narrows, and the tunnel narrows, so he's like, I gotta have her. Fast forward two more years. What has happened? You have another brother, but this time it's not lust, it's vengeance. And what he does is he starts with this. Oh, that punk, who does he think he is? Do that to my sister. And then he starts to entertain in his head. Wouldn't it be cool to kill him? And then, and if you, you know, pardon me for saying this, understand we don't act out on most of what we think. Glory to God for that. And this is one of the reasons Jesus died for me. But it's like, especially before I knew the Lord, it wasn't just taking, taking care of someone. It's you start thinking how to take care of in such a way so that they really remember it. You know, you ever remember those movies that were like revenge movies? I stopped watching those because I, I was never satisfied. It's like the first 45 minutes to an hour, they do something horrible and torture someone that the guy loves or whatever. And then he comes by and in the end he kills him by throwing him off a bridge or a train or shoots him. And you're like, come on, I just watched 45 minutes to kill this guy slowly. And then I realized, wow, that's just not healthy. But that shows you the depth of the decrepacy of my heart. And I get the idea. And the only reason I say that is without Jesus, I really relate to this guy. I think we all do to some degree because there's a part of us that wants justice for them. And you realize it's like, oh, you know what? It's like, you know, that guy, look, at no, if dad's not going to do it, but it sounds like it's my job. In two years, had the tunnel has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to where we're like, this guy's going to get it. I'm going to get it. 
I'm going to take care of it. Right? And you know it. And you realize it's the same story. It's just a different sin. And the reason I say that is maybe you're not the lustful one. But maybe you're this. It's the same thing. Now, I'm not saying rape is just as bad as, but I'm saying the issue is your sin, not somebody else's. And the reason I say that is, look at, if, pardon me for kind of going general for a moment and, and categorizing, but sometimes maybe it's not you don't beat them up. Maybe it's you just know the right thing to say about them to the right people. I've watched this. My homecoming queen, not my homecoming queen, but when I was in secondary school, high school in the United States, there was a girl, and she was very much envied by many. And she was the kind of girl that no matter what she did, things just fell in her lap, so to speak. She, and she was, but she was sweet and she was kind. It was amazing how it didn't come to her head. But because of that, everybody loved her, except for the girls who wished they were her. So finally, the girls, a handful of these girls, and they were horrible in my neighborhood, decided to come up with a rumor, and they kind of coagulated that story together, and they conferred, and they, co- and they coalesced, and ultimately, they sent it out, and people started to believe it, because there were enough people that said they were witnesses to this in different occasions. The girl wound up committing suicide. And she was a girl that had everything you would have thought going for her, except this. And the reason I say that is those girls were doing what Amnon was doing here, was, was doing, or I should say Absalom was doing here, which is that they were like, you know, she just, she, why does she get all that and I don't? And it gets smaller and smaller until you're like, you know what? I know how to solve this. It's the same thing. Well, verse 30, it came to pass, and now we're almost done. It came to pass, when they were on the way, the news came to David saying, they've killed all the king's sons. Isn't it amazing how that rumor mill always grows? You know, one son has died, the rest have fled. But what David hears is, all of your kids are dead. Now I remind you, David knows that God said, you're going to reap, man, you're going to reap. And can you imagine David looking going, wow, did I reap? And in a moment like that, if you were David... Would you roll through your head? Well, you know, I should never have had Tamar go to his house. I should have really dealt with Amnon when I could have. I mean, think of how you look back at things you can't change now with the total regret going, man, what was I thinking? And the only reason I say that is this is a horrible thing happening to David's family, but this is also a horrible thing happening to David. The king arose, tore his garments, lay on the ground, and all of his servants stood by them with their clothes torn. Then Yonadav, does he sound familiar? That was the guy who came up with the plan in the first place. The son of Shemer. David's brother answered and said, it's interesting, the one who hatched the plot. Let not my lord suppose that they've killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. Who, by the way, interesting, he was called Amnon's friend. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he was forced his sister Tamar. For two years this has been brewing. And I remind you, God says in Deuteronomy 32:25, vengeance is mine. And I realize how many times I could get in the way of God by really wanting to nail someone. And we've seen horrible things here where people have really been nasty. And there's a, I mean, because I'm a natural fighter, it takes everything inside of me to go, God, I have to trust that you're going to do this because you want to convert the soul. I just want to kill the person. Of course, that's recoded, not my part. But the vengeance is mine in Romans 12:19, 19. 
in Hebrews 10.30. I mean, am I being too transparent for you? Am I freaking you out? You know, I've just learned this. It takes certain things for a bulb to burn bright, and one of them is the casing has to be transparent or you'll never see. Now, therefore, verse 33, let's close this up. Let not my Lord the King take this thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled. He's not going to go back. The young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there were many, there were many people coming out from the road on the hillside beside them, behind them, I'm sorry, probably on their donkeys. And Yonadav said to the king, we'll see, look, the king's sons are coming, and your servant, as your servant said, so it is, see, I told you so. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came, they lifted up their voice and they wept. This was a horrible, I mean, this was someone killed in the, in the sight of all their brothers. Now, if you were one of the other guys, the other brothers, would you think somehow that brother's just going to kill, you know, jerk rapist brother? Do you think somehow you might be part of this too? I mean, once the guy goes off his nut and goes mental, at that point, I don't feel safe in the room. How about you? Uh, you know, I, for what it's worth. And so, they, I mean, imagine they just left a very traumatic, horrible situation. And they'll never be the same. So the king and all of his servants wept very, very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the king of Amichud, the king of Geshur. Why would Absalom go there? Can anyone tell me? Excellent. Because his family was from there. Because Absalom was the son of Ma'aka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. He went to grandpa. That's what he did. And I remind you, mom's name is Torturer. So I think I'd go to grandpa too. Interesting. Geshur, by the way, means beholder that's proud. David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and he went to Geshur and he was there for three Years. Truth be told, let's, let's face it, David had already lost that son two years ago, hadn't he? I mean, the fact that he hadn't come down on Amnon for what he'd done, and he'd lost Absalom then. King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Stop. Look at this last verse. How in the world is the word for in there? Did you see that word? Because, that's what the word means, because David had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So David was comforted not afterwards, or David, once once Amnon was dead, ultimately David found comfort. But David found comfort in Amnon dying. Why did David find comfort in Amnon dying? Because someone had to punish the kid for raping his sister. And David wasn't the one to do it, though it was David's responsibility as the father to step in and do something about it. David, with blood in his own hands for what he'd done, didn't feel like he was qualified to do it. Watches the situation happen, and God does step in. But at that point, David realizes, man, I could have done something, and I didn't. Because you know what's in the difference? Not Amnon. Amnon would have gone down either way. What's in the difference? Absalom. Because of this, David didn't just lose Amnon. David lost Absalom. Now, again, we're going to try to find great comfort in this. I want to remind you, do not be deceived. God is not 
mocked. You're never going to be able to make fun of God by thinking somehow you can escape from this. You want to sow to the flesh? You're going to reap corruption. You are going to reap rotting. That's what the word means. You are going to reap decay. But that's half the story. What Jesus did at the cross took my decay, your decay, and everything I had planted, and he took that and he planted himself there in its place. And when he rose up, he offered me a brand new life. See, it wasn't just the death of Jesus. The gospel isn't just Jesus died for you, or even Jesus died for your sins. That's half the story. But he rose again and deserves to be your Lord. There's the beauty in it. And I'm here to let you know, God knows how to rip up that field. Because let's face it, it's one thing to just kind of start trying to pick up plants. If you know when you've planted things sooner or later, you need a whole new field. My family and I just moved. We had this huge back garden, and it was covered in all kinds of crazy things that grew just fanatically back there. And we had, you know, crazier yet, we had this front driveway that was brick, but had never been sealed below it. So what we had was sort of this sort of square garden because everything grew up from the bricks. And you were like five times a year, you were pulling these things out and killing them and throwing stuff on there. And ultimately you could never get rid of it all. And I remember when we had finally moved to where we moved, it took me like two weeks and I got up one day and I like sat up in the middle of the night and I just started to giggle. I'm like, I just realized I will never have to pull another weed from that driveway ever again. And for me, that was huge. And I just realized that the person that I had been and the things that had been planted spiritually, I will never have to pull those things up again. Because God put me in a whole new place. However, the things I had planted as far as the world is concerned, I'm still going to reap. Now, there's mercy in that. But let's face it, you kill someone and then give your life to Christ, you'll probably start a prison ministry because you'll go to prison. God is going to forgive you. But from the world's perspective, you still have something to reap. And the reason I say that is God had forgiven David's sin, but David is still carrying it with him to some degree. It's clear. Now here, I'm here to let you know, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm here to let you know, Jesus died to take all of your filth and your shame and your muck and your horror, and he took it and he hung on the cross to pay for it, and then he was planted. And as he was planted, he rose again to show the fruit of a brand new life where he's the Lord of it and the architect of our reinvention. And if you accept the gift of Jesus Christ, you don't just accept the absolution of all your past. You accept, in essence, and embrace the lordship of Jesus for your entire future. And Christ is what is planted. And what is planted in the Spirit will ultimately bring forth the fruit of eternal life. And by the way, the moment I accepted Jesus, I didn't just get the promise of eternal life. I got eternal life because eternal life is to know the Father, the one true God and his Son whom he sent. Jesus told me that in John seventeen three, To know him. Not just to know about him or think I've got a hell out of, get out of hell free card. I know my God. And now you know what I want to do? I want to plant. And I understand I'm a city boy, so the idea of planting isn't natural for me until I look at you guys and I realize the only people that I saw that really planted in my life that I trusted were coaches. And I realized coaches are farmers too. And the sports that I played, they sowed into me ethic and challenges and decency in ways that I never got from anywhere else. 
And I realized when the Lord called me to minister, I didn't know what in the world this was. I wasn't raised a Christian, but I knew what it was like to coach. And I'm like, Lord, then make me that. Let me sow into people that what it really means to know you and the infallibility of your word that they could trust it. So I'm here to let you know, you are going to farm, like it or not. The issue is, pick your seed. The good news is, tonight, you can choose for the rest of your life. And I remind you, he who seeks to cover their sin, it's kind of like planting, will never prosper. But whoever forsakes it, who confesses it and forsakes it, will find mercy. And tonight, I'm here to let you know, God wants to bring forth a harvest in London, and he wants to use you. But that's the choice you need to make. Well, pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for what you've done in speaking to it. There's so much to chew on here. And that's not even, I mean, there's so much more we could have done, but we kind of Brazilian buffeted it here. And I just pray tonight, Lord, first of all, for anyone who's made claim to you, but somehow they are really jumping on the merry-go-round of some kind of sin, and all they're focusing on is the momentary pleasure versus the, the lifetime of payoff. God, I pray right now you deliver us from the tunnel vision, the consuming passion of that thing that causes us to be so consumed and possessed in it that, Lord, we, we just... We forget how it hurts everyone, including ourselves and those we love around us. God, deliver us from that. Get us serious again about what it means, Lord, to, to, to sow to the Spirit and not to the flesh. And what we see tonight, horrible incest and rape and murder. We see all of these things and they are the, the harvest of another man's selfish actions. God, I would, the idea that my children could anyway, that this fellowship could be anyway affected by even the sins in my heart that aren't even born out. God, it sickens me. And I pray tonight, God, you deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Oh God, but give us a passion for you and a drive to sow to your spirit as you call us to within this room, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you're not sure you have, you could be sure tonight. It's as simple as the prayer way. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and, and 10, that if we're willing to confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And 1 Corinthians 15 makes clear the gospel that Jesus died for our sins according to scripture, was buried, and just like scripture promised, rose again on the third day and was seen by a lot of people. And if you want to know the power of not just his death, but the power of his resurrection, then you agree to his terms and you accept his gift. And so I want to pray that prayer. If you're willing tonight, maybe you just want to renew your vows or maybe tonight you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time. At the end, I pray that you would say a confident, resounding amen. And that doesn't just mean full stop. What it means is so be it. I agree. Let those words be mine. In other words, I make claim to that prayer now. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And that sin makes me guilty before you. But I believe you sent your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die for that sin. For my sin and the sin of all mankind. 
And as he died on that cross, my bill was paid in full, just like Scripture promised. But he was buried, and just like Scripture promised, he rose again, so that it isn't just about saying goodbye to my old life, but having a brand new resurrected life with Jesus as my Lord, pure, undefiled, free, and untarnished by all of the things that I've done or the world's done to me. And if all you've left then is for me to have the choice to say yes to this gift tonight in this room, I say yes, confessing Jesus as my ransom, as my payment, as my Savior, and as my resurrected Lord. So have me now, I'm yours. Father, I give myself to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer tonight, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers tonight. We thank you for the privilege of this night, for the beauty of your word, even in the harsher moments where we see the filth of man, not just before us, but also in our own hearts. Now let us walk out of here different. In Jesus' name. Amen.